Pushkin. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. Tractor Supply trusts 5G solutions from T-Mobile. Together, they're connecting over 2,200 stores with 5G business internet and powering AI so team members can match shoppers with the products they need faster. This is enriching customer experience. This is Tractor Supply with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Last spring, my friend Stephanie and I had a chance to travel to Rome as part of her research trip. And as usual when I travel, we stayed at an amazing Airbnb. It was the perfect spot to check out the sights and just relax. But what was happening to my house while I was away? Did you know that while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb? Most people don't think about their space as an Airbnb, but hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, welcome to Talk Easy, a weekly podcast of intimate interviews with the people shaping our culture today. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for tuning in. This week on the show, we have rising writer, actress, and comedian Charlene de Guzman. I first saw Charlene in a two-minute short film a few years back called I Forgot My iPhone. Chances are, considering the video has nearly netted 50 million views on YouTube, you've seen it too. The movie is a quick, timely, and funny snapshot of the technology-consumed world we live in today, and probably tomorrow. It was after that short but sweet video that Charlene started to gain traction. She was also an early adopter of Twitter, putting out equally biting and revealing tweets 140 characters at a time. In her work and on her Twitter feed, she candidly discusses dating, sex, depression, Hollywood, and everything in between. Now she's doing a Kickstarter to fund her semi-autobiographical debut feature called Unlovable, a story about a woman trying to get her life in order while dealing with her sex and love addiction, something Charlene has been struggling with since being a teenager. The story of the film is written by Mark Duplass and has help on the production side from people like Patton Oswalt, Jen Roskine, and other notable players in the independent film game. It's an exciting new project, and hopefully one that gets fully funded by the end of the month. And yet, I seemed more nervous about the film's fate than Charlene when we sat down to talk. Maybe that's a me problem. For about an hour, we discussed the life of someone who truly has an addiction to sex and love. We get into what that's like on a day-to-day basis, and how that took her to some dark places in herself. But first, we talk about the surreal nature of having a piece of art go viral to have something you made spread and make waves on Good Morning America and the New York Times. So, finally, here is Charlene de Guzman. Let's see. This morning I woke up and I went on my iPad, which I rarely use, but I, it was like right next to my bed. Uh-huh. And I went to your website. Oh my god! And I started watching all the short films. Okay. You have on there. Uh huh. And the first one I saw was the was the popular, the very popular um, one. Right. It's called uh, what is it? I forgot my phone. I forgot my phone. Yeah. And the opening shot is of a guy in bed right. with his phone, and I thought, man, I'm like kind of doing <laughs> what this video. And there was no next to me, but. Uh, 
it's a problem. It's a real, like, severe issue, right? Well, I mean, I try not to see it as a problem, but it's definitely a thing that's happening now. Mm. Whether it's good or bad, it's happening. I feel like you have an opinion on whether it's good or bad. Uh, I feel like there's good things about it and there's bad things about it. What are the good things? Uh, the good things are that people who wouldn't normally connect are connecting. Mm. You know, I've met a lot of people on the internet and, like, my whole career is, like, really, you know, helped and supported by the internet. Right. Um, For context, you should probably tell people what, if they haven't seen the 48 million, there's 48 million views on this? I think it might be at 49. Oh, okay. I don't know. It might be almost 50, but it's I Forgot My Phone. Uh, it was it came out, like, three years ago and then yeah. it went completely viral. Did not intend for it to go viral. I had no idea that was going to happen. A lot of people ask me, like, did you know that was going to happen? I'm like, I had no idea. I feel like people generally don't know their things are going to go viral. No, yeah, definitely not. But now there are creators, they're like content creators who, right. whose only goal yeah. is to make viral products. Yeah, it's strange. Yeah. So what was that immediate reaction like when you put that out into the world? It was crazy. It was very overwhelming. It was a lot. I had no idea it was going to blow up that big, but I mean, it was, it felt awesome that everything that I intended for that film was being fulfilled mm. in terms of like starting a dialogue, having people look at this thing, having people talk about it. You know, there was lots of comments on that video that I refuse <laughs> to look at now, but I mean, to this day, there's still comments and it's like, oh, okay, cool. What were the bad comments that you remember? Well, well, I mean, there aren't any bad comments, but I mean, people have their opinions on this topic <laughs> and sometimes I just let go of it because I'm like, is this person just a nine-year-old girl? Like, It's possible. I, it's possible. Yeah. <laughs> this is before you had to like sign into your Gmail to comment on YouTube. Ah. So anonymity was a lot easier, I think, back then. Huh. This was This was three years ago? Yeah. And I definitely, I don't remember if it's this particular film or some of my other ones where there's just a whole dialogue on like my tattoos and like whether they're ugly and wrong or they're okay. Like it's like the dumbest things. <laughs> it's so weird. That's an interesting dialogue. People really need to figure out whether they're good or bad. Yeah, tattoos. it's yeah. crazy. It's crazy. The film is only about 90 seconds, right? It is very short. It's I don't very remember, short. yeah. And it started to appear on like the Today Show, yeah, and the New York Times, yeah. You hadn't had anything like that before. No, I, I mean, did you f- feel like that was a legitimizing moment or or something like that? I felt like I felt like I did a good job of pointing something out. Oh, <laughs> that's what it felt like I was doing. That's what you're doing, you know. Pointing something out, like I, I, I try to make it clear that I, I didn't have a, a opinion on it really, you know, a good or bad opinion, just like acknowledging what's happening. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've. It's interesting that you seem uh, like removed or ambivalent about that topic now, <laughs> because I, I feel like I have pretty strong opinions about. What are your strong opinions? I mean, they're not great. They're not, they're not, it's, I'm not positive. Okay. And, and I don't like that I wake up right. in the morning and check my email. Yeah. Uh, and go on Twitter and Facebook for like, I have, I have to dick around for 30 minutes. Right. That's a problem, I think. Well, if you think it's a problem for yourself, then you could change that, right? Yeah. <laughs> but do, do you not have any of those issues? Or um, you don't see them as issues? No, I mean, I definitely have those issues. That's why I think one of the reasons why I made that film to begin with, because I, I definitely had a phone thing going on where my friends were even very aware of it, of like, oh, there's Char on her phone again. Like, definitely just the, the just the, the detaching from it. Right. It's always like a thing for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I am not what's on that screen. Were you that person in your friend group that was always on the phone? Um... I think I was for a bit until I got called out on it, and now I'm kind of the opposite. You're the one. You're the one in the short film looking around. Well, maybe not that extreme because I, I don't forget my phone <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> but I, I notice when I am having a really good time, I can just forget about my phone, which is really nice. Well, well something I was interested in 
is speaking of phones when that when the video came out mm-hmm. were you constantly checking the <laughs> amount of like at mentions you were getting on twitter or the views you were getting was that was that something you were doing um i mean i guess so but you know actually when all the stuff really blew up with this film like i, I for a minute like me and my partner miles who made the film like we had to like take a break almost away because it was just so much right. it was overwhelming it was overwhelming yeah i just i know that feeling it's only happened like once or twice to me where something has blown up on the internet uh-huh. that i contributed to uh-huh. and it's i don't it's not healthy uh-huh. it's not healthy because you're constantly looking for that dopamine rush yeah. of oh i need validation from this person oh look at these random people who say i've done something of value yeah I can't even, on your scale, that seems like, uh, I don't know how I would function. I think now I just know to stay away from my phone for a while. So, like, right. even when, like, sometimes, you know, a tweet will go viral, like, it'll go crazy because somebody big will, like, retweet it, and then all of a sudden I'm seeing so many notifications. Like, I don't even have my notifications turned on on Twitter because it's just, like, I just can't, I can't, I right. can't get can't get invested. sucked into that mm-hmm. yeah so you're a healthier person now i am a healthier person now that's good, <laughs> that's good. Yeah. so tell me i don't i tried to look at or find stuff about your background but i don't know really much about anything so where where, where are you from um i'm originally from the bay area i'm from san jose okay um and i was a competitive dancer growing up that i saw I, fa- I found that. So like, that was like my thing, like, you know, little tap dancing girl, like trying to get trophies and stuff. So that was how I performed. That seems like a stressful sport. It was crazy. <laughs> it was intense. It was crazy. It was a lot. I'm sure it, it took its toll on me. What, what age did you do that from? <laughs> I started at when I was six and I did it until I graduated high school. So 18. Yeah. 12 years. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, And then um, after that, I... It, in college, I studied both journalism and theater because for the longest time, I really thought I was going to write for a magazine. That's what I wanted. To you do. wanted to do that? Yeah. I wanted to like, I wanted to be a music journalist hmm. m- mainly. You interned at Rolling Stone. I did right? intern at Rolling Stone. I interned at Jane. I interned at YM. <laughs> you got around. You did a lot of it. Yeah. Like I, I, w- I was really committed to that. And then there were stomp auditions in New York and I got in. So I did stomp. And I was like dancing and playing music oh. again. Um, I did Stomp in New York, and then they sent me on tour, and I did that for three years. And then I came here because I wanted to try the whole TV film thing. Hmm. And I've been here for eight years. You've just gone through your life so quickly. That's the fa- <laughs> that's the fastest bio I've ever received on the show before. Really? Yeah, you went from like childhood to now. Yeah, I guess I, I've learned how to condense it so yeah but i don't want you to parts. condense it <laughs> so what tell me let's go back to dancing for a second okay okay what what is like 12 year old you doing like dancing going to dance class every day all day that was your whole life yeah and you loved it i loved it was your family into it too they were supportive yeah i mean i had two brothers that were much older than me so they weren't around at that point but my mom and dad were very supportive took me to dance class paid for all my lessons Paid for all my costumes. Mm. Very supportive. Why do you think you wanted to dance? I really liked it, especially tap dancing. That was my favorite. Mm. That's why it worked out when I got into Stomp, too. I Mm -hmm. just love that stuff. I love being on stage. You feel like you're on top of the world and like nothing can stop you. I always felt like really odd in my family. I felt different than the rest of my family. Odd uh, and different in what way? I was always like very emotional. I had so many feelings. I had so many questions. I always wanted to talk about things. I feel like everybody else in my family didn't talk about feelings, didn't mm-hmm. show emotions. They were reserved? Yeah. I didn't really see my parents express themselves. Mm-hmm. Did you try to like open up to them and, and have them express a little more? Yeah. I mean, I feel like once I reached that age, especially like in middle school when like I started getting depressed and I started like cutting myself and doing all these emo like, you know, teenager things like I think it probably even pushed me away from my parents further because 
you know, that point where you don't think anybody will understand. Mm -hmm. And what do they do to try to understand? Well, I mean, at that point, I think at some point I did tell my mom what was going on. And I, I don't know. In our family, we just, we, we didn't really talk about things. So it was all just uncomfortable for everybody. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. When did that get better as a kid? Um, I think I, <laughs> I honestly feel like I, I was, I got depressed when I got into the sixth grade and I probably did not really find relief or happiness from all that till like three years ago. Wow. But I mean, the cutting stopped in my early 20s, but mm. the depression, I think I've just... Why like, sixth grade? Neat. That's like a very... Because honestly, in elementary school, I was like really popular. I was the best dancer in my studio. <laughs> I was like on the top of the world. Then I went to middle school and like everyone thought I was weird. And then like, you know, <laughs> like one cool person decides like, oh, yeah. she's like annoying and weird. And then like everyone thinks you're annoying and weird. So it's just like, okay, I'll just join band and like not have friends walk me through the process from uh like dancing to going to school and you, you stopped doing dance once you went to college right yeah i stopped and i would try to take classes in college but like i just for some reason wasn't feeling the passion that i did before and i remember it being a really kind of sad transition for me because I felt like I was trying to force it on me but I was just like it was just not happening and I mean I think that's how I got into theater really at the time though because I missed the stage and I just saw like a flyer on the ground of my Spanish class that was like open auditions for the vagina monologues and so I auditioned that was great and then I'm like okay I'm gonna just change my major to theater but it seems you had your feet in two different you're potentially going to be a journalist yeah and and acting yeah because even when i moved to new york like i had interviewed for a writing job at jane as like their beauty editor or something or a beauty writer uh. and then that, and then they ended up folding right and then i was uh. like oh my god what am i doing here in new york and thankfully there was auditions for stomp and then so I was like, okay, I'll just try this. But did you, when you were, uh, tell me about something um, like interning at Rolling Stone. Mm -hmm. What was that like? That was fun. I mean, I feel like I was only maybe like 20 years old at the time or something. I was In really, New York City. Yeah, I was really young. But that was cool. Because, I mean, every day just like being in those offices is just like, oh my God, I'm at Rolling Stone. Right. Like, that was the coolest. So when do you move out here? I moved out here in 2008. Okay. So I've been here for eight years. Eight years. So what's the, tell me, run run me through like the first year of living here. Ooh. Um, <laughs> well, I had a boyfriend here, so that made it easier. Um, I was really depressed in LA just making that transition until I started taking classes at UCB mm -hmm. and getting into comedy and that saved everything. Was that soon after you moved here? That was in 2011. Oh, three years. Yeah. So there's three years there that you're like... Yeah, I was probably very miserable and drunk all the time. Oh. <laughs> so UCB like saved you from the depression? Or yes. At least it kinda Honestly, got, it got you out of it Yeah, UCB saved me from the depression because I found my people. Funny, so, pe funny people? Yeah. You know, I, I made friends that I fit in with, finally. Were the people at UCB equally depressed? Probably. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> probably. There's probably, you know, there's a reason why we're there <laughs> doing that, I'm sure. <laughs> Did you think you could do comedy? I never knew. <laughs> I honestly never knew. And... And even like doing improv, like that was really terrifying for me. And I really wanted to do it just to like break through that fear. But at the same time I was starting that, I was starting to just say things on Twitter. Mm. And they were really just honest, depressing thoughts. But then that started to catch on. Like they were gaining traction. Yeah. Because it started with um, Patton Oswalt. Because I had, I had met him at a screening for a mutual friend's movie and then I like tweeted at him or something and then he started following me and then he started retweeting my tweets and at that point I only had like 
maybe 400, 500 followers. And it started with him. And then I got more followers. I got other cool people following me. And then it's just grown from there. You say you're tweeting just like depressing thoughts. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. And Patton also was like, yeah. I guess so. Maybe I feel like he was like, oh, I relate to that. <laughs> ah, you think that's what it was? I think so. I almost, Sometimes I feel like when people fave a tweet that they're like saying like, me too. Yeah. So what's the difference between a favorite and a retweet? I feel like faves are like, me too. And retweets are like, I endorse this person. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That makes sense. So Twitter was an outlet for you as well. A huge outlet because... That was going crazy, and then someone had suggested, like, have you ever thought about, like, making a YouTube video maybe based on your tweets or something? Mm -hmm. So then I, like, made one that was based on a tweet, and then that did well. And so I was just like, oh, now I'll make YouTube videos. Right. And then having that Twitter audience already, like, I mean, it all really worked out. What did UCB teach you? UCB taught me that as long as you commit to it you'll 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 be fine you mean committed to the bit yes <laughs> yes like like with improv like you don't have to know anything but as long as you you're not halfway and you're just all in like you're good hmm. was that hard for you to accept or really easy uh it was hard but once i've found out the rewards of that like i really use that in my life because like Uh. before i just like used to be so terrified of people really bad social anxiety really just like big fear of the world all the time and like now i can go out there with that same mentality of like if i just like look committed to this like Uh i'm fine like so you're you're like yes ending all over the place yeah i'm yes ending all over the place are you an improviser I'm a, a mediocre one at best, I would say, yeah. Cool. I can tell. <laughs> Why is that? Because you're saying things like commit to the bit and... and Yes, and. And yes, and. I feel like yes, and is, is slowly becoming... It's like popularized. Okay. I think people... I think there are people figuring that <laughs> phrase out. It's a good phrase, and, and it does apply to just day-to-day life, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're good memories, and... If anything, it's like these things helping me find really who I am. Because mm. what I love is that when you do find out what you don't want, then you could look at what you do want and focus on that and get some more of that. And that's really great. So what do you want? Well, I just want to make movies. Mm. I want to make things that relate to my experiences and my feelings and relate to other people who have same or similar experiences and feelings. Um, you know, I've always really appreciated any kind of art, whether it's a movie or an album or, you know, a painting or whatever. I've always appreciated art that like makes me feel like, Oh wow, this artist like gets me Mm. like this person understands how I feel. Like I want to, give that feeling to other people because I think it is the greatest feeling. What artist gets you? Um, You know, like the other night I went to the Radiohead mm. concert and I'm like tearing up, you know, during Paranoid Android. And it's like, man, I'm just like, I feel things when I hear this song. I feel where I was at the time when the song came out. Like, this moves me. This affects me. Like, I, I think that's so powerful, and I, I love that. Where were you? I feel like the time that I was really, really listening to it was probably in high school. And, yeah, just, like, depressed and feeling misunderstood and probably wanting a guy to like me. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you say probably? Was that, a, was that a constant thing for you? Yes. <laughs> a guy liking you? Well, just like being obsessed with guys and my world revolving around guys. Mm-hmm. So does this tie in because the, the film you're making mm-hmm. is about sex and love addiction. Mm-hmm. I have about 10,000 questions Great. about this. I, loved, I would love to answer I don't, them. I don't know. I don't, I don't know it. Yeah. So tell me about where do you think that started? Sex and love addiction? Yeah. Like for, for me? For you. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, not, not <laughs> give me the history of sex and love addiction. No, no, for you, yeah. Um, well, sex and love addiction usually 
you know, it's this hunger for love. So they, a lot, most people will say that it comes from your childhood and like a hunger for your mother or a hunger for your father, usually your mother. Do you buy that? Yes. For you? I feel like everything, everybody's things that they have right now, I know people think it's bullshit sometimes, but like everything's from our childhood and our parents. I'm sorry Mm. to say, spoiler alert, but it's from your, it's from your childhood. Uh, and what happened? I don't think you have to put a spoiler alert <laughs> in there. <laughs> but how much can we? I because I, I I don't um, I don't disagree with that. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I'm tired of blaming my parents. Right. Like I'm tired of blaming childhood. Yeah. For things already. Well, and it's not like it's not like blaming because I it's I I don't believe in victimizing anybody either. But you know we are born these innocent little babies and then as humans we make meanings of things and you know we get our experiences and there are layers and layers and layers of experiences and we get further away from that innocent baby Hmm. i don't know if i was an innocent baby well you're born innocent you you think so yeah okay i don't know my parents always say like at five i was like kind of a piece of shit well something happened between zero and five oh that's what it is. Mm-hmm. I think I was just a news. I was a loud kid. I was picky too. Were you were, 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 were you think you were like an innocent five year old? Um, I mean, at that point, yeah, I was innocent, but I was already, you know, very sexualized by the time I was five. How so? Um, well, my dad was definitely like probably addicted to porn and women and there was just a lot of that around the house Mm. there were pictures of centerfolds all over my house really did you catch him looking at that we would go get him porn me and my mom would get him porn i would go with my mom and dad to get porn it was just like all kinds of crazy unhealthy things happening he would say all right time to go buy porn (laughs) no it wouldn't be like that but it was just like a normal thing of like we're at the video store and now dad's getting porn or like me and my mom were at the video store and it's like, we're going to get my dad porn. Wow. And how did your mom feel about it? I don't know. We don't talk about anything. <laughs> Still? No. Really? Not really. But you're so open about this now. That's why I'm saying that I feel like I'm a little black sheep of the family. Yeah. But she's heard, she's read your tweets or like. I mean, yeah, probably. But I mean. She, she hasn't engaged with it? No, I mean, I don't. I don't really talk to her. Okay. Yeah. So, like, do you guys have, like, Thanksgiving dinner or something like that? No. My family, we all live different places, and, like, I definitely rarely see them. Do you feel like you want to confront your parents about some of this? I mean, I I have, and they they know everything. And my dad passed away, like, 10 years ago. Um, But I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to get much more from my family. So you have to work it out on your own. Yeah, and you know, I have my chosen family and I have support and yeah. Mm. I'm all I don't need anything from them anymore. I think it's been a process of that, but I feel good about it now. Mm. When did the sex and love addiction really take hold, do you think? I mean, I honestly think it started really really young because like if you look at my journals from when second grade and stuff i'm talking about boys all the time Mm. but like even at that point when i was really young and i would like when i was home alone i'd watch my dad's porn then i was like already addicted to porn as a kid yeah already addicted to masturbating super young Uh but like what did you think when you were watching those videos as a kid what, what was your what did you think about it i didn't know what was happening and what what happened to me then is I had written a story at a very, very young age that I needed to be a woman like that in order to be loved. I I needed that because that's what my dad likes. I need that's what this is what sex is. This is what being an adult is like. That is what a woman is. And so I grew up always wanting to be like one of the women that are like you know, in the Playboy centerfolds that my dad was looking at, you know. So, like, by the time I 
was around 20, like I started posing for sketchy photographers on the internet trying to be those women. And by the time I was 21, I was a stripper. And then that turned into prostitution that I did all throughout my 20s up until, you know, I mean, I got out of the sex work, but still even healing from that story of that I need to be that sexualized woman in order to be loved. Did doing that sex work make you feel better in the moment? Um, I think it was a survival thing. I also think it was like my new way of cutting uh. where it was just like, well, because the story that I had for myself was that I'm only a value if a man wants to have sex with me. This is what I have. This is all I have. This is all I'm good for is sex. So it was like a survival thing of just like, okay, well, if I'm having sex, if someone wants to have sex with me, then I'm fine. But I mean, I was feeling like shit all the time and, you know, definitely traumatized from all of those experiences that I've had. Um, So it was definitely a self-destructive thing. It was very self-abusive. It kind of trips me out because I recently realized, because I've I've been talking more about my experiences now as a sex worker because I realized I had been holding on to these for so long. Mm -hmm. But like I... Well, first of all, I didn't even know that the experiences were even that bad. And then I um, I shared them and I the reaction I got was just like, oh, right. All of that was really terrible. Um, but realizing that that was bad and realizing that I was the one doing it to myself. You know, I hear all these stories about like, this was done to this person or, you know, this person was abused by this person. And then like, it was tripping me out when I realized I did that to myself. Like that's how much I used to hate myself. Mm. Um, but thank God I love myself now and I never have to go back. Right. So you thought it was self-inflicted. Oh, absolutely. But there's still a contributing party. There's like someone else there. But I'm the one who showed up. I'm the one who's like, yeah, yeah. I'm the one who is letting whatever happens without saying no or going away, you know? It was very abusive on my part. Oh. Were there times that you tried to say no, even to yourself? Like, hey, I can't. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And what would happen? I just freeze because I tell myself that I deserve it. You deserve the pain? Yeah. That's how it used to be. So I would just tell myself, I'm a piece of shit and this is all I'm good for. And You don't buy that now? No. <laughs> I'm okay now. <laughs> uh, I don't have a good response. That's okay. Um, I think the thing to remember whenever I do talk about these things with people is that I'm so incredibly happy now and I so full of love and I love myself and I'm so grateful for all of that that I've experienced because it got me to where I am now and it makes me who I am now in terms of just like what I've been through and now I get to help a lot of people with it. Mm. So when did that like sort of euphoric state happen? Um, Over three years ago. Um, I had like reached another like bottom in my life because I was in a relationship and then I was also still doing the sex work and I like just was trying to drink through it and like I was just a mess and how did you juggle, um, a relationship with sex work? It was really hard. (laughs) It's really exhausting to live a double life. How did, did the partner know about it? No, and then I eventually told him, and that was, you know, crazy, too. How did you navigate, like, sneaking around that? Oh, it was just, it was really hard. It was really hard to do. Mm. It was really painful. It's hard to keep up with your lies. Right. You know? It, it was you had to really, keep track of them. Yeah, it was right. a really bad place to be. So the bottom is, you break, you guys break up. No, we actually, we actually got through it. Oh. After I spoke my truth to him, yeah. Wow. But yeah, we ended up staying together for a couple years, but then it all ended once I needed to face my sex and love addiction that I had been avoiding the whole time. Mm. 
And was he upset when you cut it off with him? Um, well, I think it was just going really, really badly. And I knew that my addiction was something to look at. Um, and he actually broke up with me after we'd gone 30 days without contact. Cause then I was already starting the program, mm-hmm. sex and love addicts anonymous. Did you want him to be there the other side? I did. I, I honestly got in the program and was even trying to help myself cause I really wanted to save this relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was me and my addiction because I mean, now I look back on that and I was like, there that was not a relationship that was working out at all. That was not the right person for me. Mm-hmm. Um, what wasn't working about it? We just weren't right for each other. Mm-hmm. Definitely not right for each other. Um, he was probably the most emotionally unavailable person I've ever been with, uh. but I've been with a lot of emotionally unavailable people. Cause usually the love addict will do that. Um, but you know that's the ma- that was the match for me at that time because I had such this unconscious fear of intimacy that I would go for somebody who was so unavailable, thinking uh, that that feeling of longing is love. Mm, I see. Did you go to someone emotionally unavailable so that you could say, "Ah, oh, I can't be with them, or it's not working out because they're not available"? Like you didn't have to pit it on yourself. Well, I almost think it was a reason to justify that i am broken and unlovable oh so it was contributing to that idea you had of yourself yeah and then when you really look at it i'm just like what usually happens with people in their relationships just repeating my old childhood because now i'm longing for this guy's love like in the same way that i was longing for my parents love Mm -hmm. so you go through this process of like the 10th step or what, 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 what's the, you said you like did 30 days, no contact. Yeah, I did. We did 30 days of no contact. I saw him again and he dumped me. Mm. Um, and then like a month later or something like that, we had hung out, we hung out again, we had sex and that made me go crazy because then I couldn't get a hold of him after that. Like he wasn't returning my call or something like that. And I spent a whole day for like seven hours freaking out and wanting to kill myself because I felt so crazy and I thought it would never get better. I wanted to kill myself and I'm like pacing around my apartment, freaking out. And like seven hours later, he calls and I see his name and his picture on my phone and I can't even answer the phone Mm. because I just immediately feel all the pain and anguish and anxiety that I'd been feeling for those seven hours just like dissipate from my body immediately. And I remember saying out loud, this is how I know I'm sick. You said that out loud. I did. It was just like, it was just, I saw how it was a drug Mm. at that time. So what happens the next day? I cut it off with him for good. You called him up? I called and I left a voicemail. Oh, (laughs) a long voicemail. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you didn't hear from him again? And I, I cut contact with him. Oh. And I think a few times he may have got in touch with me, but I just kept going. Right. And I went through a full withdrawal. It was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. Mm-hmm. Withdrawal, you make it. That sounds like a, like that's generally used for a drug term. Yeah. So they did a study with the withdrawals comparable to heroin. Right. Well, you have a short film about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. I made that. <laughs> I, I did some research. I forgot about that. Yeah, <laughs> I I find that interesting that love is comparable to doing a drug. Right. Well, not real love, but I like to put love in quotes because it's like what we think is love. Okay. Like physical attraction, sexual attraction, dependency, longing, rescuing, being saved—all these things that we mistake. So you think there's a love out there that is not that? Yes. Okay. Can you tell me what that is? Well, here's what I've found. Okay. Because um, I'm in a relationship now, and it's a healthy one. But the addiction goes away when you've put in the work in loving yourself and becoming a whole person who loves themselves 
because now there's no longer that hole in your soul that you're filling with another person. So now that I am a whole person, then being with another person just enhances my life. It's not something that I'm dependent on like a drug. Mm. You know, there's this myth out there that you need another person to complete you. But the key is, is that you are already a complete person. So it needs to be a compliment. Yes. Okay. Uh, in your relationship, I think I read, are you guys are celibate, right? Is that, is that part of it? Well, so we're actually coming on the stage where we can have sex, mm-hmm. but we've been on a dating plan where we go really slow. So like in this first month, it's like only one date a week and no physical stuff and limited contact in between. And then the second month, like you can kiss a little. And then like, you know, the third month, like we did, we, we can sleep at each other's places, but like we still haven't had sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that nerve wracking? This is the most fulfilling relationship I've ever had in my life. Really? It's so the opposite of anything I've ever experienced because all the guys that I've even been with, like, they were just one night stands that stuck. Like, I never have known a person that I was with. So it's just like I'd have sex with them immediately. Sometimes I'd end up in a relationship with them. And then when all the chemicals fade away after two years and I look at this person, I don't know who the hell they are and I don't even like them. And then I resent them. But I'm too attached that I can't leave. Wow. (laughs) That was quick. That was the fastest you've talked throughout this whole interview. Because that is just that is what it has been. And now just experiencing the exact opposite of that in terms of getting to know a person. Mm -hmm. Because even before this guy, I had gone on... Um, we call it sober dating. I had gone on sober dates with a few other people before that guy. And it was cool because I got to walk away from them after two or three dates because I realized that like, oh, I don't really like this person. And I like didn't have to have sex with them or end up in a two year relationship with them, you know? Mm-hmm. So just walking away from that. And then, you know, with the sober dating plan, a lot of people are just like, oh my God, I could never do that. I know I thought I could never do it. But like when you do find someone you actually like, then it makes it worth it because then you want to do it right because I already have all this, you know, data from my past experiences that that doesn't work. So I just need to try this other thing and it works. And it's really just getting to know a person, Mm. which I'd never done. That sounds nice. It is nice and it's terrifying and it's like, you know, I'm getting through that fear of intimacy because it's just like it's super intimate of getting to know a person, Mm. just talking. They're also getting to know you. Right. The is being it, seen part. Is that terrifying? Yes, it is. It is. It used to make me physically ill. Like I remember on my first sober date, I got home and I just like cried and was like screaming. I never want to do this ever again because I was so physically ill from it because mm. I'm just not used to it. Before I would just I'd have to like be drunk and then I'd have sex with them immediately. Were you always drunk when you had sex? Yeah. Always. Probably most of the time. I mean, before I was just, I was drunk a lot mm-hmm. anyway, so. So now you're not doing, you're not drinking anymore or? I mean, I drink every now and then and like, you know, a beer. Yeah. But I'm not like partying anymore. Right. Or it, basically not trying to escape anything anymore because I'm actually happy with mm-hmm. what reality is now. That's good. <laughs> okay. So this is now bringing us to your movie. Yes. So give us the pitch because the Kickstarter is at like 30,000. I think it's right now it's like a 31 or 32. 32,000. Yeah, we need 50. You need 50. We need 50. Um, And we only, at the time of this recording, we have like 17 days left or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So we'll we'll put this out on next Tuesday. Oh, great. Um, Great. So tell us about the movie. Um, So the movie's called Unlovable. And it's a comedy uh, about a sex and love addicted woman that uh, discovers true intimacy for the first time by playing music with a reclusive man. And so um, it's not my story, but it is based on a lot of my experiences. It seems autobiographical. It's not. Like, just know that the the actual story of the movie is not my story. Mm Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it is my story in terms of being a sex and love addict. And you do play music. I do play music. <laughs> but <laughs> but it's a fictional it's a fictional story, you guys. 
Um, you know what? We, we'll we'll call it that. <laughs> if, if it'll make you feel better. We can go. With that. It is though. I never. I mean, I never. I didn't have this story. You didn't know any reclusive men. Oh well, I definitely had a lot of reclusive <laughs> men, but I wasn't playing music with them. That's the thing. Okay. <laughs> and Mark Duplass has written the story. Well, me and Mark uh, came up with the story together. Um, it was originally developed by the two of us. Mm-hmm. Um. Because when all this started, I had sent him a pilot that I had written that was based on sex and love addiction. Um, and so he wanted to meet and he was like, let's make a movie about this. It's going to star the two of us. Mm. Um, but I mean, he had to drop out of that because his schedule got crazy. But he um, introduced me to one of his favorite producers and, you know, we got a team together. And now mm. we're we're doing this. What was developing the story like between you and Mark? Um, it was fun because he really wanted, he just really wanted to play music. Uh. I don't know if you heard Mark's band from back in the day. No, but I, I mean, I know of it. Yeah. Yeah. So he's a great musician. And so he really wanted to play music. Um, but it was fun coming up with the story together. You know, we would come up with an outline and then tweak it a little, get on the phone, talk about it some more, tweak it some more. Mm-hmm. It was a fun process. Is he good to work with? He's great. You see, he seems like a good person. He's very but... supportive. I've definitely learned so much from mm-hmm. him. And now Pat Oswalt is involved, right? Well, he he donated, um, and so he will be an associate producer. Mm-hmm. It seems like you have a good team around this. Yeah. Lots of people have been supportive. I'm very excited about it. Mm-hmm. Do you think you'll hit the fifty thousand? I sure hope so. I think so. <laughs> I think you're on your way. Yeah, for sure. I hope so. So, run me through the dream here. The, the movie. Dream. The movie gets made. The movie gets made. It premieres at festivals. It does well at the festivals. Which festival do you want? All of them. <laughs> All I know of them. you. I know you've envisioned this in some way. You've thought about like how you want things to. Yeah, all all the all the film festivals, all of them in the world, all of them in the world. I will say this: there are quite a bit of film festivals. Yes, all of them in the world. Um, the 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 jury prize and the audience award. Um, it gets it gets bought. It goes mainstream. Oh, you want to go mainstream? And then we win an Oscar. Wow! (laughs) So you have low expectations. (laughs) Gotta dream big, or else you don't get it. That's true. My real dream for the movie, though, bringing awareness to sex and love addiction, helping people know that about this thing that they probably have and feel not feel less crazy about it and know that they can get some help. You think more people have it than they admit? Yeah. A lot more? Yeah. Why do you think they don't admit it? Um, well, cause for the longest time I just thought I was crazy or I just thought this is what people do. And then I've like found out, no, this is not really what people do. Mm. Well, it seems like you have the solution or you found it cause you're in a good relationship now. Mm-hmm. Your movie is on the verge of being made. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many Twitter followers you have, but I'm sure there are plenty. <laughs> so that's good. Yeah. You happy? I'm so happy. I'm the happiest I've ever been. Where do you see yourself in five years? Five years. Um, just I just want to be really happy. I want to be helping people, and I want to just be making movies, and hopefully, like a TV series or an animated series and books and everything. I just want to do everything. <laughs> well, I hope that works out for you. Thank for you. And thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Well, there it is. A special thanks to David Nin at Kickstarter for reaching out and making this episode possible. For those interested, you have a little under two weeks to donate to Charlene's film, Unlovable. And you should. Being part of something before it is that something uh, is always rewarding. And lastly, a big thanks to Charlene for taking the time to talk. People. If you've enjoyed this episode of Talk Easy or any other episode of the podcast, it would mean a lot if you could give us a review on iTunes. It is the best way for new people to find the show, and uh, we want new people to find the show. That would be good. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting app, 
If you want to drop us a line about anything, feel free to email the show at talkeasypod at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod. Uh, be sure to tune in next week when we have the wonderful Melanie Linsky on the show. As always, our theme music is provided by Vanilla. Our executive producer is David Chen. Graphics by Ian Jones. Illustrations by Krishna. Social media by Maria Mayella. The show is produced and edited by Coria Tad. I'm your host, Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The Medal of Honor podcast is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. It's a special thing to be a member of Navy Federal because they're a member-owned, not-for-profit credit union that invests in their members with amazing rates and low fees. That's why members earn and save more every year. If you are active duty, a veteran, or have a family member who is a veteran or service member, you're eligible for membership. Become a Navy Federal member today. Navy Federal Credit Union. Members are the mission. Insured by NCUA. Equal housing lender. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry and me. I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com.